We will return to Elijah next week and actually bring it to a close, but I would like to ask, if you will, for our communion this morning to turn to the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, chapter 43. A sermon designed to, if the Lord is pleased, prepare our hearts for communion. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Let us briefly pray. Our Father, our hearts indeed are full as we consider the greatness of our Savior. May we be focused upon Him. May we be God-centered in our worship, and God-centered in our living. And as we are so, Father, we see ourselves as needy sinners. And in this text, we see the greatness of your grace. But Father, perhaps there are those here who have never seen the greatness of your grace because they do not see themselves to be sinners. And how we do ask that the Spirit of God will be at work in their lives, showing them their need and opening their hearts to receive the Savior and that we, your people, will receive him yet again and again, every day, confessing and believing and trusting and knowing ourselves to be saved by grace alone through what Christ has achieved for us. Will you bless in this way, we ask, as the word of God is read and expounded and as we come to the table of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 This is the word of God. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The book of Isaiah is sometimes called the Gospel of Isaiah, and this is very appropriate. Here we have a prophet who prophesied in the 8th century B.C., And yet, for example, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, he speaks of the cross as if he had been there himself. Isaiah was not only a great prophet, he was a mighty evangelist who presents in clear fashion the Lord Jesus Christ who would come many, many years later. And in this passage, the Lord speaks through Isaiah to ancient Judah, but clearly the text takes in God's people in the future. Notice in this chapter, verses 5 through 7, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is not only for ancient Judah. This is a text for you and for me today. He writes to us, to those whose Savior is the Lord. And the Lord's indictments that he brings against his people in this chapter are so clear and so severe from the standpoint of God's holiness that it makes the text truly remarkable for us to see. Now, let's first notice this. Number one. The text addresses those deserving the judgment of God. The text addresses those who deserve God's judgment. In this passage, he addresses those who do not even call upon the name of the Lord. Look at verse 22. 
Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. They did not pray. They did not seek him. They did not have heart for him. Their affections did not go out to them, to him. They were a prayerless people. They cared nothing for communion with God. I wonder even here this morning, is there someone here who is prayerless? You do not desire communion with God and you are prayerless because you are Christless? Not only did he address those who did not call upon the Lord, he addressed those who are weary of God. Again, verse 22, the second part of the verse. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. Can you imagine that? A people weary of their Creator, a people weary of their Redeemer, a people who were weary of the ways of God, of the Word of God, of the worship of God, a people who are weary of the Lord, who have no use for Him, no use for His Word, no use for His Gospel, no use for His church. Again I ask, is there one here who attributes all of your blessing to self? Some young person, perhaps, who can hardly wait to be out from under the authority of your parents and the authority of this church, maybe within your heart saying, I'm really weary of all of this. I'm weary of preaching every Sunday. I'm weary of the Bible in my classes at school. I'm weary of my parents always talking with me about the Lord. I really have no heart for it. The text addresses those deserving of God's judgment who are wearied of God, but also who burdened God himself with their sins. Look at the latter part of verse 24. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God himself saying, can you imagine anything more dreadful than God saying, your sins have been so consistent and so great and so ongoing that I am burdened and wearied with your sins. Now, if God enumerated our sin, who could stand? The human heart has not changed since the 8th century B.C. The human heart is still the same. The human heart is still depraved and sinful, rebellious and self-centered. Not one sin has ever escaped his notice. This is a people deserving his judgment. Now, some sinner will say here, yes, Lord, your charges against me are true. As I hear these things, my conscience is truly pricked. The Spirit of God is working in my heart. Ten thousand facts prove your judgment, your accusation is just. And if that is you, if that is true of you, perhaps for the first time, that is a marvelous thing. And so the text addresses those deserving God's judgment. Will you notice, secondly, that the word of pardon is promised to those who do not deserve pardon? Again, the point of verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions, he says. The Lord does not pardon iniquities of people who are already clean and have no iniquities. Right in the middle of the indictment that he brings against Israel, he pronounces pardon. That's the wondrous thing. Because you see in verse 26, he goes on with the indictment. He actually brings them to court. But right in the middle of that, he pronounces his pardon. Nothing can hinder the sovereign mercy of God. Charles Spurgeon said, Men know and prize divine mercy most when they most feel the weight of their sins. Until a man is consciously condemned and pleads guilty, he will not ask for mercy. And if mercy were to come to him... He would treat it with disdain. 
The man, the woman, the child who has never known himself or herself to be a sinner cares nothing for the mercy of God. And so the Lord does not pardon the iniquity of people who are qualified by their own goodness. The Lord pardons the iniquity of people who are truly iniquitous, who are guilty of the greatest of sins, weariness of God, and people who have wearied Him with their iniquities. He pardons people who have turned from Him and who in life have not called upon Him. Isn't that grand and great? And notice how the Bible takes sin seriously. Never sidesteps the depravity of the human heart. The Scriptures teach us that by nature we are fallen in Adam, that sin holds sway over the whole person, the mind, the affections, the will, the conscience, Our hearts are evil from birth. The Bible teaches original sin, the corruption of our nature, that we are not born innocently, but we are born with sin, and we can do nothing to renew ourselves nor to produce our own righteousness. Calvin is right when he says the foundation of free righteousness is when we are stripped of our own righteousness. If sinners are pardoned, if we are pardoned, We must be sinners in need of pardon, and that's the point of verse 26. Look at it. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you might be proved right. He brings them into the courtroom. All right, you think you don't need pardon? You think that you're fine? You you set forth your case. And here he is, the holy God, bringing them into the courtroom. See yourself hopeless before the law of God. You know the old statement, the mill of God grinds late but grinds to powder? It's true. Grace brings us to see, I deserve that judgment which is coming on that great day. And it is very difficult for us to see ourselves to be sinners in the biblical sense. You know, I've visited, I have visited hardened criminals in prison who think they're good men. You talk with them and they say, yeah, I'm I'm a pretty bad guy. I've done this and I'm in prison because I've done this or that. But before the conversation is over, I've never yet had one of them that wasn't talking about, I haven't done what this guy did. I'm better than this person. Not one time. I'm always good. I'm a sinner, and in the next breath, I'm a good man. You see, the Bible says that we are slaves of sin. The total depravity of man is the hardest thing for us to grasp. As a matter of fact, it is impossible for us to grasp apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. After all, do not unbelievers also love their children? Unbelievers love their neighbors, don't they? And you see, you're missing the point. True love to neighbor can only happen when we love God. And we excuse our evil thoughts and actions, and we forget that unless God regenerate the heart, we will not do one single thing for the glory of God. What makes a good work good is that it is done in faith, in union with Christ, and for the glory of God, and no unbeliever can do a good work. One has said, by so much as you think yourself righteous and holy, by so much shall ye be cast out of God's presence at last. So whatever appears praiseworthy before men is of no value for acceptance with God whatsoever. 
For a work to be good, it must be done out of faith in Christ to the glory of God. No unbeliever can do it. But I think otherwise, you say. I think that God does accept me on the basis of what I do. I do all kinds of good things for people. I give to the poor. I'm on the Rotary Club. I'm what I... You can think that if you will, but God's Word is not debatable, and God's Word teaches the bondage of the will and the sin of the human heart. Now keep your finger here and turn to the third chapter of the book of Romans, will you? Let's remind ourselves what the Bible has to say about the human heart. In these opening chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul has shown that Gentile and Jew are sinners. Now he brings it to conclusion in Romans 3, beginning with verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written. And then there's a litany of Scripture passages. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And because we are sinners like this, from the head of the foot, from the head, from the head to the foot, There is no soundness in man, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, to use the language of Isaiah the prophet again. It is impossible for us to satisfy for our own sins or do anything good that would make us acceptable to God. And so a true sense of sin is given by the Holy Spirit, and that is a blessed thing. There's an old hymn that says, A sinner is a sacred thing, the Holy Ghost has made him so. You know what the hymn means? When God reveals to me my heart and I really see myself to be a sinner, that is a sacred moment indeed. If you do not know that you are guilty, may the Lord show this truth to you even now. If you are not stripped, you will never be clothed. Do not be deluded and rocked to sleep. Indeed, we are truly dead in our trespasses and sins. Not just sleep, but we sleep the sleep of spiritual death that characterizes every one of us outside of Christ. And the Lord only washes the unclean. Modern thought would have us think that God does not punish sin, but the man who sees his sin knows better. We justly deserve his displeasure and are without hope save in his sovereign mercy, we say in our membership vows. This is the confession of every believer. The Lord must vindicate his honor, must uphold his justice, And that's why Christ came, to bear the sins of his people on the cross, that his justice might be done and the penalty paid in our place. The Lord cannot punish me for that which was laid on the Son of God as my substitute. Oh, how remarkable this forgiveness is in this text in Isaiah 43. I, even I. He is drawing attention to the greatness of his character. 
I, even I, the infinite, the eternal, the unchangeable God, I, the Lord, the offended one, I am the one who forgives and pardons your transgression. Sin attacks the character of God and stretches out to destroy, if it could, the sovereignty of God. Sin is no trifle, my friend. Consider the one that we have offended. Consider the one who forgives you and now value the pardon. How essential that we have a true view of who God is rather than the God of modern thought. To offend that God, the God, little g, of modern thought is like offending Santa Claus. Who would fear it? There's no justice to offend. But to see who God is and our sin before him, what hope is there but in his own prescription in the cross? I must hear, I am desperate to hear, when I know myself to be a sinner, I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions. But now, thirdly, let's see that the Lord first describes forgiveness as the blotting out of sin. Look at the text again. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. This word, mochech, blot out, is used in the Old Testament in various places, usually in connection with judgment. For example, when the Lord says, I will blot out the memory of Amalek, what does he mean? He means I'm going to wipe Amalek off the face of the globe in my judgment. That's what he means. Well, it's the same word that's used here. Sin blots and stains the character. Transgression that he uses in this text means willing rebellion. So there's wonderful news here. There is a possible allusion to a debt book, such as will be seen on the day of judgment, according to Revelation 20, when the books are opened on that day. God knows all things. He knows every thought, every intent of the heart, every sin, every transgression. He knows you. He knows me. And the New Testament says that Jesus came and is called our surety. That means he's the one who bore the legal obligations of his people. Suppose I owe a debt and another one says, blot out his name from the ledger and lay his debt to me. Scratch his name out, put my name in his place. Blot out the debt, reckon it to me. Then my friend, I'm not concerned with that debt anymore. Christ came and paid the debt of his people's sins. Just as the man reading his ledger passes over blotted out names and reads the name of the person who substituted himself for the one whose name was blotted out, so the Lord blots out the sinner's transgressions. But maybe someone here says, I do see that I'm a sinner and my sin is so great. Listen again to my friend Charles Spurgeon. Having a divine person for an offering is not, is not consistent to conceive of limited value. Bound and measure are terms inapplicable to the divine sacrifice. 
So Jesus who substitutes himself for us as God and man in perfect union dies upon a cross. Your sins are great indeed, but there is no bound and there is no measure to the atonement of Christ on the cross, no bound and no measure to what he can do to remove the sins and transgressions of his people and blot them out. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, we have these great words. God made us alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled out the debt. The debt book for God's people is closed. The Savior cries out, blot out his crimes, blot out the scarlet stain with the deeper scarlet of my own shed blood so that we have actual pardon of our sins now who believe in Jesus. It's not a process, but an act, a clean sweep. We are completely accepted by him because of what Christ has done. And get this, he does not say in this text, I'm going to blot out some of your sins. If that were the case, then I would still go to hell. He does not say, I'm going to blot out most of your sins. If that were the case, then you and I would still be deserving of God's displeasure forever and ever. But he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Every single last one of them is blotted out of my book. Annihilated. So Jonathan Edwards could look upon his sin and every time he thought of him, thought of them, he would say infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. And it's right that we see our hell-deserving sins to be a sin against an infinite, holy God. But the work of Christ blots them all out. Listen again to Mr. Spurgeon. Sins against God's law and word and day, sins against Christ's blood, sins against His love, sins against His person, sins against the crown, sins against Himself and all His characters, an infinite variety of sin, they all vanish before that gracious declaration, I, even I, am He that blotteth out thy transgressions. Name your sin, my friend, it's blotted out. If you're a believer in Christ, you're justified in the presence of God. And so the first thing that he does in describing the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ is to describe them as sins that are blotted out. But notice, fourthly, the Lord next describes forgiveness as forgetfulness. You see verse 25? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Ah, says the trembling believer, my debt of sin is infinite. To what infinite debt do you refer? Oh, I come before the Lord, my debt is infinite before you. Believer, what debt is that? Oh, says the Lord, that's been forgiven. That's been forgotten. Why does God not remember it? Why does not he remember it against us? 
my sins were laid on Christ. In chapter 53 of this very book, he tells us of the Christ that would come. And in verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, He has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he will never impute sin to me that was imputed to Christ in my place. Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. Do you remember Zechariah chapter 3? in which there is the high priest of the people of God, the priest that is to represent them before the Lord, and, they are, and, and we see that high priest completely covered in filth from head to toe, accused by Satan, and the Lord rebukes Satan and completely removes the filthy garments and gives to him absolutely white and clean garments from head to toe. That is the picture of what Christ has done for us his people in Christ. It means, believer, that whatever God is doing in your life by means of hardship, he is not showing judicial wrath and condemnation to you. God's judicial wrath, his judgment, is spent on Christ, and not one thimbleful is left for you. God's fatherly chastisement is not condemnation, but love. So why does God not remember my sin? Because he remembers something else instead. What does he remember instead of your transgression? God does not remember your sins because God does remember the merit of his son and his shed blood on the cross. An old preacher once said, We are dead in Christ. How can the law arrest a dead man? And that's true. Fifthly, what is the Lord's motive in forgiving our sins? Well, here's the most glorious thing of all. Look at the text. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why? What is the motive? God tells us the motive for my own sake. He goes right to the highest motive, the most determinative motive, God's own character and his own sovereign will. And it's remarkable since sin is an attack on God, an attack on his holiness, that it is God who for his own sake removes our transgressions. What does that mean? It means several things. It means that there is nothing in the creature that would move God to pardon sin. That there is nothing in us that would draw out his love. He loves us because he loves us. There was nothing in me that would draw out his love. I was completely a sinner deserving his his displeasure. It means that God's motive is in himself. That he did not have to save us. He did not have to send his son. That God aims at his own glory in the salvation of sinners. As we read in Ephesians 1.6, he did this to the praise of his glorious grace. So he who blots, he who pardons, the pardon comes from within God's own nature. I, even I, am he. 
It means that God's motive is the issue and not your work. Not even your faith, not even your repentance. These are gifts of God. Gifts of His grace. And it means that it's a comfort indeed that the motive is within God Himself because there could be no reason within me. If He is to pardon, it must be for His own sake. Now let me bring you some inferences of that truth. God says, the motive for pardoning sinners is within myself and not within you. Let me bring four inferences. The first inference is this. If he pardons for his own sake, give up any thought of contributing any work of your own to your salvation. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I contribute nothing. If it is for his own sake that he pardons our sins, then those he intends to save, he will save. His plans are eternal. Christ died for His people. The Holy Spirit will call those for whom Christ was a substitute, and without fail, He will save us for for eternity. If it is for His own sake that He pardons our sin, then clearly those for whom Christ died, has drawn irresistibly by the Spirit of God, will persevere to the end and will be kept for eternity, safe in Jesus' forever. If God forgives, who will condemn? There will be no double jeopardy. He will not pardon Christ and then pardon me. He will not punish Christ and then punish me a second time. The Father does not punish Christ for our sins and then turn around and punish us for those sins. And then there's a fourth implication. How knowing such truth, listen to this, How, knowing such glorious truth, how, having seen from this text that He saves those who have not wanted communion with Him, how, that He saves those who have been wearied by God, how, He saves those who have burdened Him with their sins, knowing such truth, Knowing such love should make every Christian here hate sin to the very core of your being. There are those who think that grace encourages us to sin. That can only be because they don't understand grace. Free grace does not encourage us to sin. It encourages the opposite. When I think, Christ died for me. Christ, the eternal Son of God, shed His blood for me. He loved me, and He gave Himself for me. When my heart is gripped by that truth and that reality, that atonement is particular, it's for me then increasingly I hate my sin that put him on the cross 
and how I have abused this merciful God. Now listen, I want a congregation who understands that your sins are completely forgiven and pardoned in Christ. I want a congregation who understands that you are just and received in the merit of the Lamb. I want a congregation of people who understand that we can be assured of our faith because of what Christ did. I want a congregation of people who understand that I am completely justified by the blood of Jesus. But I also want a congregation who will say, you know, I will not watch that thing. I will not participate in that thing. I will not do that thing. I will not allow my heart to be drawn to that thing. I will not commit that sin. I will not be engrossed in that horrible, horrible activity because it is contrary to the grace of God in my life and it is not good for my soul. And both of these things should stand side by side in your lives. On the one hand, knowing that I am, by the grace of God, pardoned of my sin and iniquity, justified. But on the other hand, a desire to be progressively sanctified and learning to hate what God hates and love what God loves. Do you want that? That was weak. Do you want that? Do you really mean that? Listen, the sword of the gospel thrusts itself into legalism. It says to you, you can do no work to save yourself. It thrusts its sword right down into the heart of Mr. Legalism. But the sword of the gospel also thrusts itself right down into the heart of Mr. Antinomian who says, ah, you're forgiven, live like the devil. If once I know that this accursed sin nailed my Lord to the cross, do I want to hold on to it? If once I learn that this accursed sin nailed my Savior to the cross, do I want to love it? The cross justifies, but the cross also sanctifies. My guilt is removed, but also the dominion of sin is removed. Well, let's bring it to conclusion. Well, someone says, indeed, pastor, this is a very, very rich little verse. But you know, it's an Old Testament passage, and I have a hard time understanding the Old Testament. It doesn't really, really apply to me, does it? My friend, listen to this. Again in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, this is what the Lord declares. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that what Isaiah just said? And then we move to the New Testament. Did you hear the New Testament? God's Word, the book of Hebrews And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, we read, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that what Isaiah and Jeremiah said? And then in this New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, we read, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord 
I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He sees believers in Christ as if we had never incurred guilt at all. Better, he sees us in the righteousness of Christ, imputed to our accounts and received by faith alone. Fellow sinner, what our age lacks is a sense of despair, a recognized sense of sin and the presence of an infinitely holy God. If there is anything that does not characterize the age in which we live, it is a high view of God, a high view of His character, a high view of His holiness, and because that is not there, we have no sense of debt or obligation because of our sins. None whatsoever. That's where our culture is. And where that is present where you do see that God is who He is according to His Word, that He is holy in all of His ways. Holy, 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 as we sang this morning. Then none but Jesus will do. No other Savior will be sufficient. God's Word calls you to trust in Christ. Cast aside your word and work and believe in Christ alone. His glory is the issue here. You will be continually frustrated in life. Continually frustrated. Until you recognize that the purpose of your existence is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that frustration simply shows that our wills are bound in sin, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot atone for our sin, that we cannot on our own even believe or repent. We need the Lord, or we are undone. We preach a gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. He's an almighty Savior who can break the hardest heart, make the dead to live, call to life, regenerate, justify, sanctify, and glorify, because this is the God who says, I, even I, am He. I will not remember your sins against you. I, remember who I am, I who created the world. I who clothed Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. I who called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and promised that this gospel would spread the world through his descendants. I who led my people out of Egyptian bondage. I who sent my son into the world. I who sustained him in his earthly ministry. I who crushed him on the cross for your iniquities. I who raised him from the dead. I, the infinite, the eternal, the unchangeable, the God of promise, the God of the covenant. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.